Logos Mobile Education provides seminary-level course content to anyone right where they are. We work with world-class scholars to carefully craft a learning experience that only Logos could deliver. Visit logos.com slash mobile ed to start learning today. Welcome to Mobile Ed Conversations, where we chat with today's top Christian scholars. I'm Kyle Nation, and I'm here with Dr. Daryl Bach. Dr. Bach is the Executive Director of Cultural Engagement at the Howard G. Hendricks Center and Senior Research Professor of New Testament at Dallas Theological Seminary. He is the author of a great number of books, including the forthcoming Life, Liberty, and Loving Your Neighbor, also most recently Truth in a Culture of Doubt, Engaging Skeptical Challenges to the Bible, Parables of Enoch, A Paradigm Shift, and Truth Matters, Confident Faith in a Confusing World. Also, a number of books on the historical Jesus, including uh, Studying the Historical Jesus, A Guide to Sources and Methods. Today, he joins me at the Faith Life Campus in Bellingham, Washington, where he's filming two more courses with Mobile Ed on the theology of Luke and Acts and cultural engagement and scripture. Dr. Bach, thank you so much for joining us today. My pleasure. Yeah, and, and just before you know, we, we started recording here, I got to hear a little bit about when you, as a New Testament specialist, began to to see the need for proving the relevance of of Scripture to the world because it was starting to wane. Tell me a little bit about that presidential address at the Evangelical Theological Society and what led to you having that sense that we need to start putting forth effort to engaging culture. Yeah, that address ended up being a book called Purpose Driven Theology. And basically, um, I was saying to the Evangelical Theological Society, if we don't show the direct relevance and, and applicability of our theology and what we do, if we just write on esoteric academic topics and that kind of thing, then we will lose our access and our voice in the society because we'll become viewed more and more as irrelevant. And so I tried to walk through one, how that conversation should take place, the philosophical and epistemological roots for it, which is a big way of saying, being careful how you say what you say. And then, uh, and then from there, uh, moving into uh, specific kinds of examples and how to deal with conflict, um, where there are different views, both in-house within the evangelical movement, as well as our larger conflicts with what's going on in the wider world. And the appeal was to show the relevance of theology. I really do believe that theology is relevant to every sphere of life, but I think we do a less than adequate job of showing that. And so even if you look at most, um, if you look at most Christian websites and what they end up discussing, they'll discuss family or they'll discuss church, but they won't discuss work. You know, most people spend most of their time at work. So how is work relevant to my life and to the way I think about the way I live theologically, that kind of thing? Um, they won't, they'll, they'll, they'll either engage politics as a matter of confrontation or they will, uh, or else they'll uh, be afraid of going there. And really what we need is, is a way of showing not just um, what the engagement is, but how to go about it. Cause I really think how we say what we say along with what we say is important. Yeah, absolutely. As you, well, first of all, what um, what precipitated that problem? Now, obviously, most Christians in our culture today are feeling that uh, because it's more visible mm -hmm. politi politically and 
and even where they interact. You know, my dad, a pastor in a very small town in Kentucky, is is feeling it in practical ways in local politics that he never fathomed in his life. Mm-hmm. And um, and whereas someone on the West Coast may have been experiencing that a little earlier. Um, and how do you? Uh, where did you begin to see that in two thousand? Where from from the academic standpoint or from the intellectual standpoint, you're obviously speaking to that audience, saying and it's happening here. Did it happen there earlier? Well, or- I think I think what I what I saw happening was an was a relativizing of the importance of scripture into these discussions, and an attempt to set scripture aside. So a lot of my initial work was apologetically oriented to saying, no, what the Bible says matters, and its content is actually relevant to a lot of the conversations that we need to be having. But then. Uh, as I worked with it more and more, it wasn't just a matter of defending the Bible so the people would open it up and take a look at what it had to say. But then you had the interpretive or hermeneutical problem of, all right, what do I do with how the way the Bible works? Most schools teach their students how to go from the Bible to life. But what we're talking about here are situations where people go from life back to the Bible to see what it has to say about it. That's not the same move. And so people have got to think through how to how to go backwards or what I call switch hitting. Um, and because when you go from the Bible to life, it's it's cleaner. You know, you study through the book, the book has a set argument. Uh, you study systematic theology, it has its set categories. You study a character, and granted the character faces certain things, but character development's pretty clean. And so you study a topic, you organize, you organize under the topics, and it's all it's it's all neat and, and and nicely cut up. But when you go from life to the Bible, life is life in a fallen world. Life is a life full of tension. Life is lived with values in conflict with one another, and with facing hard choices. And in some cases, the choices are between a good thing and a better thing. Or in other cases, is the choice between two not so good things. So which direction should I should I go? If I've got two bad choices to make, you know, which does the least amount of damage, those kinds of things. And so figuring out how the Bible, how how the tensions of life in a fallen world walk into the Bible as a whole. The other thing that makes it hard when you go from life to the Bible is then you've got to have a biblical theology of the whole of what's going on in Scripture. You can't just cherry pick and go here and there. You've got to think through the angles that are involved in the conversation. It's just a harder process to go through, and yet it's the, probably the process by which most people attempt to read the Bible, because most people, everyday people, when they go to the Bible, they're looking for God to speak to them into their life situation, where God has them in life, and, and they want help in that regard. And so we flipped the whole thing around and, and made it neat and clean, but then the neat and cleanness of it, sometimes we ignore the very tensions that we have to negotiate in life that Scripture is calling us to think through, which is why you've got to have discernment in the Spirit as well, because the Bible doesn't quite answer the questions sometimes that we ask in quite the way that we ask them. And so all of that makes for an interesting engagement with Scripture. And and that began to intrigue me, and um, and I'm still very early on in trying to wrestle through how that works. In fact, the course that I'm doing here on cultural engagement I don't even teach that class at the seminary yet because uh, I'm still playing with the pieces and thinking about how to put all that together. Well, we're happy to be the testing ground, and we'll <laughs> receive that in full. Um, sticking with the switch-hitting metaphor, because uh-huh. I, I like baseball, we'll uh-huh. stick with that. Uh, maybe we can switch to a food metaphor later. Okay. We'll, we'll, we'll cover the ground. Okay, that's um, good. But right now we're switching. Yeah, you got to eat and play sports or life isn't full. Exactly. <laughs> Amen. Amen. Uh, so, yeah, switch-hitting, and basically even in any given 
game or any given arena having to deal, uh, you know, and call, uh, make a, a situational call for that, and that becoming a reality more and more for Christians as um, we're really not the dominant culture. Other people are not thinking like this. Kind we're, of back to where the first century church was. Exactly. You know, the church yeah, century precisely. church wasn't. What didn't? I mean, they didn't. They didn't have political power to lift a little finger, uh, and uh, uh, and so and yet they functioned and they functioned effectively and they drew people to themselves. How do they do it? They became an effective community whose whose life matched their message, and in the midst of that, uh, in the midst of that consistency and how they functioned as a community, they became a magnet. And uh, and so we spend so much time trying to fix the world when sometimes I think what we need to do is to be more effective in who we are as communities as kind of the incubator. And if we do that well, and if we show what we're about in the way we function as a community, uh, that may that uh, social interaction involving multiple people at one time working together well might actually become an attractive place that draws people. One hundred percent agree. There's the reality of the uh, I've found in my experience the reality of the challenges of doing that yourself and maybe even with your group of friends and maybe your church community or your small group or your ministry. Then there's communicating that in other arenas mm-hmm. and in a you know this game is over maybe even one. Well, then the next game and how that gets communicated and uh, this also is partly what we were talking about before we flip the recording light on about how, um, you know, pastors will often talk to their churches one way, but then if they get invited to a public forum and they talk the same way, um, they may have feel like they have the perfect way of switch hitting and hitting that curveball when a lefty steps to the plate, but um, little did they know that uh, they're getting thrown a splitter or something else and it just comes off wrong, it's a foul or something like that. You tend to, due to the nature of your work, interact with a lot of different arenas, a lot of different spheres and people who are in the political um, kind of uh, thought leaders who are speaking into in, a broader arena, top level politics. And if a pastor or a, or a neighbor or someone in their cubicle is talking to, um, you know, their, their non-Christian or even maybe um, very aggressively um, uh, kind of issue oriented person for, for, you know, we can list off the biggies, you know, if they're pushing for gay, you know, the homosexuality issues or the abortion issues. I mean, all things that are erupting um, today in ways that maybe they haven't in the past or haven't for a long time. And they try to communicate with the same kind of verbato or the same kind of uh, dis- depersonalized language. It's, it's just going to be a strikeout. What is your encouragement as Christians, particularly Christian leaders in their various capacities, move between the more personal, intimate environments where they're encouraging Christian people into their workspace where they have they function a little differently. And then beyond that, when they're in the public and they're, they're on the record, they're being interviewed for uh, media. You're thing. always on the record. Even okay. social media, you're always on the record. Exactly. Yeah. That's one of the mistakes that people make is that they think that they're conversations are private, but they're not. They're registered, and they always go on the register, so you're always in public. There are a couple of things to say. Um, the first is to remember um, remember this, that the battle that you're engaging, because we've used culture war and battle metaphor for a long time in the church. I actually think it's misdirected us, and here's why. The battle that we have, as Paul says, is not against flesh and blood. It's not against the person I'm engaged with on the other side of the table whose life map disagrees with mine. 
the battle that we have is with spiritual powers and spiritual forces. And so I need to remember that the enemy is not the person who disagrees with me. There's a more profound enemy that I'm actually engaged with whose goal has been to capture the person on the other side of the table. And my goal and my assignment and my mission is to try and recapture them back. So, uh, so, uh, so I'm actually trying to gain the person who's the opponent, if you want to think of it that way. So it's not a war like normal wars. You know, in a normal war, the goal is to defeat the enemy and overpower them. Okay. But this war is a case in which you want the enemy to become an ally. So how do you do that? Uh, the second thing to remember then is this, that the, you're always dealing with a tension, and the tension that you're dealing with in cultural engagement is the tension between taking your moral stand or your moral challenge or representing God or representing virtue, which sometimes, which oftentimes, in fact, you can expect that the culture is going in a different direction. We know that. That's what the whole Bible is about. Uh, and so, um, so you know that's the world that we live in. But in the midst of that challenge, extending a hand of invitation to a person that says to them, the real way to better your life and to seek what you're actually seeking is to come into the experience of what God offers in the gospel. And so if, if, if you don't extend the hand of invitation in the midst of the moral challenge, you become culturally tone deaf. And I see too many pastors who I regard as culturally tone deaf, the, they, they, what they're saying is true, but the way in which they say it does two things. Not only does it alienate the person that they're talking to, which is pretty important, but secondly, it absolutely often undercuts the actual goal that they have in challenging them, which is to say, I want you to take Jesus Christ seriously. Uh, and so how do I take Jesus Christ seriously? I take Jesus Christ seriously by showing that he cares for us but he cares for us in a way that is for our betterment. He doesn't just care and pat you on the back and say, go on and live your life the way it's been lived, but he actually cares with a challenge. And so we've got to care with a challenge too, if we're going to model his way of doing it. So that means not just challenging, that means also caring. So the two things, as I say, is the spiritual battle is not with the person who disagrees with me. My goal is actually to try and win them out of the hands of the one I'm doing battle with. And the second point is, is that if I don't extend that hand of invitation in the midst of offering the challenge, then I probably haven't operated with the right tone. And not only does content matter, not only is standing up for God and what he represents morally matter, but the tone with which I do it is also very, very important. In fact, I'd argue that in some cases we might have the content completely right, we have the tone wrong, then we've totally missed out. How do you identify that problem? tone deafness, even if your content's perfect or great, and how do you correct it? Well, the tone deafness is pretty can, can be spotted back uh, pretty obviously, I think, by, the, by just thinking through what it would be like to be on the other side of the conversation that you're having with the person. Uh, I, I like to tell this illustration. When we were doing uh, Truth Matters and um, Truth in a Culture of Doubt, I was in a PR meeting with the publication firm. I won't name them, although it'll be obvious if anyone does any research. And in the midst of the meeting, someone said, Dr. Bach, you know, we could really go out and we could, you know, really do a battle here and really be in their face and that kind of thing. Because this is an apologetics book. And uh, and I, I responded by saying, you know, I, it, was, it was this tone thing. And I said, you know, tone to me really matters. And, uh, and so I said, you tell me what you would rather hear. If someone asked you a question, you said, you know, you're spiritually blind. You aren't going to see this unless God enlightens you. 
you know, you really uh, need to think seriously about uh, about listening to the way God says things. Or I say to you, um, you know, that's a really good question. I understand the sincerity with which it's asked. Now, would you like to hear an answer and approach to it? Which of those two would you rather hear? And which of those two do you think you'd be responsive to? And so I said, what I want to do is I want to deliver the second. I'm hoping that the Spirit works through what I said in the first, through the way I do the second. But but I would rather hear the second. And I, I think that's how you spot tone deafness. You ask yourself, if I was on the receiving end of that stinging rebuke, even if it were, even if I were to view it 100% true, what are the chances that I would react emotionally to it rather than substantively to what's being put on the table and shut down and not respond? versus the opportunity of being open to what you're about to say to me. And so uh, that's the way I, I think I, I think you go you go about it. I think it's interesting that Scripture tends to be hardest on the people who think they're the rightest, <laughs> okay? And, uh, and, and, they, and they tend to be, they tend to be, it, it, they still issue a challenge to the people who live differently, but, but if they're open to hearing it, then they'll issue the challenge with this extension about why it is that God cares about them. And I think we have to communicate um, that God cares about the people we're challenging. What are some of the best examples that you see, uh, maybe resources or people, uh, just examples in general, where you're like, this is kind of a good framework to follow if you're trying to think about what this looks like and get some regular advice or counsel or examples of, of, of moving into a more uh, tone-aware and a, uh, a learning an appropriate tone as we speak with a culture that is now and has been different than us, and then also uh, correcting maybe if we've, if we've gone about yeah, it. Yeah, I, I think the pastor who does this the best that I've seen in terms of the social issues is Tim Keller. Uh, I think that he does a good job of explaining what the biblical standards are on the one hand, but also understanding what motivates people who think differently. I think the real key to this is understanding what's motivating people who think differently. And the church tends to charge them with being selfish or being arrogant or wanting their freedom or whatever it is. And there are certainly some people who I think are there. It doesn't matter what the church is going to say, and they aren't going to listen because they 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 want they don't want God messing with their life. But there are a lot of people who ask very sincere questions and have very sincere um, desires and even motivations for going off in the direction that they've gone in. And Tim Keller wrestles with those questions and how to answer those questions for the people who have, how to answer those questions for the people who have those questions who are asking them out of a sincerity. So he doesn't, he doesn't challenge the integrity of why they're going the way that they're going. He challenges their sincere questions with integrity. And in the midst of doing that, he, um, he, he authenticates um, their quest and their search and then tries to redirect it. And I actually think if you watch what Paul does on Mars Hill, that's exactly what Paul does. He opens, off and he opens up by saying, I see that you're very, very spiritual in effect. You know, and I, you know when, when I, I joke with people when I do a message on this passage and I say, you know, I read that verse in light of the fact that just a few verses earlier it says, Paul was provoked by all the idols he was seeing in Athens. And I go, Paul, what are you smoking? I mean, you know, to open your speech that way. But what he's doing is he's saying, I respect your spiritual quest, but I also believe that spiritual quest, the way you've undertaken it, is taking you in a direction that's actually ultimately destructive and is not going to help you. I would like to redirect you to do, by giving you another angle on the story that hopefully will give you pause. And so that's the way in, and that's what you see Paul doing. I think you see Tim Keller doing that kind of stuff too. He's helping Christians articulate it from their side, 
so that hopefully they get it with some sensitivity. But he's also addressing how the non-Christian does it on the other, and and, he, and as a result, he's getting he gets some attention because they get the sense that that he gets them, that he understands them and what motivates them. And in the midst of establishing that connection, now he's cleared up all kinds of space and ways to to begin to address it and to get people to think. Perhaps you ought to think about this from this angle instead of the one that you're on. And sometimes that gives them pause. Yeah, that's really helpful. What projects are you working on? I mean, you mentioned, you know, this forthcoming book on, uh, you know, life, liberty, and loving your neighbor. Um, talk, maybe talk a little bit about that and maybe other projects or, or what directions you're taking the table podcast that you um, host uh, to help drive some of these improvements in Christian communication in this culture as well? Well, I'm doing a variety of things. This book, Life, Liberty, and Loving Your Neighbor, is a look at the Bible and politics and how we handle it. It's a rebuke of everybody. Right, <laughs> My nice. joke is, is if this doesn't go well, uh, retirement in Australia is really nice. <laughs> and uh, But basically, it's a, it's a shot at the left and the right for how we handle the Bible, how we appeal to God in politics, how we use the Bible in politics. And my claim is, is that both sides are cherry-picking that each side picks the set of passages that are that supports the angle they've already taken and doesn't wrestle with the tensions that the Bible itself reveals and thus robs us of the real conversation we need to have in certain areas. So, for example, with regard to gun control, I'll just to use a couple of examples real quick so you get a feel for this. You know, does the person have the right to defend themselves and the well-being of their family, on the one hand, in their homes, that kind of thing? Um, but what do we say about the fact that, you know, we— Christians supposed to be really hesitant to use violence and supposed to be uh, aiming towards peace and those. How do you put those two things together? What does that exactly look like? You know, and and you know, the our country has made a decision we're going to have guns in our society. It's a different decision. This conversation is completely different in the UK where guns are outlawed. Um, so, but the context is here we have guns. But do I really need a bazooka? You know, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> and and how do I make that decision? Okay. Um, you know, so, uh, well, you're so, in Texas. So the answer is obviously it, yes. Well, in, Tex in Texas, people want bazookas. Yeah. Okay. All <laughs> okay. right. The question in Texas is, should I have nukes? Yeah, okay. Okay. Oh, okay. okay. All <laughs> right. So, um, but, uh, so that's a, or another tension in immigration goes like this. Uh, we've got two values. We've got the biblical value that the alien is supposed to be treated with care and compassion when they visit the country. There are all kinds of laws in the new, Te in the old Testament in particular, that tell Israel to tell, treat the alien with care because you know what it is to be an alien and to be a, in a, an oppressed environment. You had that experience in Egypt. You don't want to replicate that for the people who come to you. So so there's all those kinds of passages. And there are also sort of passages that show we should respect the laws of our country. So how do you put those two things together? And how do you make that work? And how do you make that work for a policy that is stretched out now without a way of, uh, of a real good way of, of dealing with the undocumented people, some of whom in the original part of that, well, it's been going on for 30 years. And in the early part of this process, we were inviting people in. We were saying, yeah, we know you'll be illegal. And okay, we'll wink and nod. And now you've got three, two or three generations here. Do you enforce the law and just send them all out? I mean, is that the way you do it? So how do you border keeping and honoring the laws of your country, which is to try and protect your borders and have some sensible immigration policy in terms of how people get in, with how you treat those who have already who are already here and in some cases have been here a very very long time law abiding except in this one area uh, all that time etc how do you give them a path to get to where they ought to be so that you actually make them a full useful participant in your society how do you balance those two things and see rather than picking and choosing i'm going to be 
four strong borders. I'm going to be compassionate towards the person who's here and give them a path. And labeling that with all kinds of things like amnesty or whatever, what we need to have is a discussion about how you put those things together. Do you link them? Uh, Do you say, well, we'll fix the borders first, and then we'll talk about those who are already here? Or we'll enforce all ours first, and then we'll talk about who's left? How does that work? And you split families across three generations. Those kind of, and, and my point is, is that when you start to have those conversations, you realize that some of the solutions that are kind of all or nothing actually practically are not workable. And then you got to talk about, okay, now what do we do? And it's robbed us of the conversation that we really need to have to get to a policy that makes sense. So, uh, so the exhortation of the book is we've got to figure out how to live with one another. We've got to figure out how to love our neighbor, how to love our neighbor well, even the neighbor who's very different than I am. How do we have those discussions well? How do we put all the pieces on the table and have the respectful civil conversation that we need to have to work through the tensions these areas introduce, face up to the tensions, and then ask yourself, what's the balance? How do I take these two biblical values so that they both can apply in the most effective way possible rather than choosing one or the other? Wow. So that's no small task. That's no small task. And I did tried to do it in about 250 pages, doing through about seven or eight different issues in the midst of having first laid a groundwork for why you have to approach things this way. Looking back at our history and the way, uh, the way in which religion has been respected in our culture throughout several decades, which we're now risking moving away from, with huge warning signals from many of our founders that's, that basically say, if you move away from religion, what you do is you move away from having a stable society. And so so there's that warning that's tucked in the book as well. Yeah. Now, as you've sent that out to editors or readers, what kind of responses have you gotten? I've gotten it. The, the initial response has been very, very positive. This is a very challenging book for everybody. Uh, I, I, hand, I, have, I, have, I have friends in my, you know, I'm in Texas I have friends in my office who have um, big tea party uh, uh, sympathies, uh, and part of the message is aimed at them. And so I handed it to to the husband of w- one of the people I work for, who's very, uh, you know, I, I mean, they're as conservative as they come. They they are the fox of Fox News. And so uh, oh and in the midst of that, uh, he, he said, you know, he said, I didn't agree with everything that you said in terms of policy, but you did make me think. And, and, that's the goal of the book, because if I can, if we, if we can get people thinking about how they communicate what they believe more effectively and more wisely and with more mutual respect, uh, that actually would be a goal achieved as far as I'm concerned. Tell me how many years you've been teaching. I'm in my 34th year at Dallas. 34 years teaching at Dallas. Um, From the time you started until now and the student base that you've seen come through, do you, does that give you, based on the, that, whatever trends are represented in that, you know, scope of that, um, do you feel like generations are getting more and more prepared to enter into this new world or, or the same or maybe less so? Do you see anything that excites you, makes you feel good about it, or anything that concerns you that you're really hoping to correct? Well, I'm not going to cherry pick, so, that, so I'll, here, here's, where, here's where we go. I, I think that this generation is less biblically prepared to address the world that it's in, but it's more culturally sensitive. Uh, I think that because they've grown up in the midst of this shift, rather than watching it shift and react to it, they've had to kind of try and wrestle with how to cope with this all along, the younger generation has. And so they're they're more they're more sensitive to the tension side of it, uh, but they have less to bring to the table in dealing with the tension. 
that's not a good place to be, okay? Because that leads to the potential of, of what I would consider to be a form of capitulation. Uh, uh, but the other side is just as dangerous. To know where you are without having sensitivity for what it is to how you deal with it makes you ill-equipped. It makes you tone deaf. Uh, it makes you ill-equipped to deal with it in a way that's going to hopefully draw people into a, what will hopefully be a, a better conversation about it all. So um, I, I, am I optimistic or pessimistic? I think I'm in tension, which is exactly where a fallen world uh, puts us oftentimes. Well, what you said falls in line with a little bit what I've heard from a lot of speakers come through Mabled. Generally speaking, the one of the main trends I hear is a, a decrease in biblical literacy and an increase in biblical skepticism. Um, less are speaking more so in the way you are about their sensitivity to culture. Mm -hmm. It's the first time I've actually thought and heard about it, especially at a place like Dallas, mm -hmm. you know, it uh, brings um, uh, typically a more conservative base, That's right. That's right. you know, that actually the, even there, there's That's right. We know how to spell the word culture. Okay? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Indeed. Uh, that there is, you know, that there is even there a, a sensitivity that's outweighing the literacy of, of scripture. Uh, moving yeah. The through. question is how to move, weave, weave the two together. Mm -hmm. We have a slogan at the seminary. I really like and it's teach truth and love well. Mm. And, and you really need to have both. And so, uh, so we're trying to balance those two together. Um, and we recognize, it, it, you know, if anyone just thinks about this for a minute theologically, they'll realize what, what people are facing. And that is that I, should ha I shouldn't have the expectation that if someone doesn't have exposure to what it is that God has said and revealed and embraces that with any level of trust, that they should live in the way God expects them to live. Those two things don't go together. So, so why should I be surprised? And, you know, I, I, I often say to people that when we live in a world as secularized as our world is becoming, and people have stepped away from the, even the cultural undercurrent of a Judeo-Christian base, and liberty and entitlement get uh, elevated to the level that they are elevated in our society, why should we be surprised with the decisions our society is making in these areas? Because the choice is a raw choice about my freedom to choose. If I given the freedom to choose without some type of sense of moral constraint, then I'm choosing for anything that I want. The moment I choose out of my wants, uh, I'm going in any and every direction. None of that should surprise us. The only thing that, that allows for people to think about living a life with moral constraints is having some sense of responsibility for the concern of others as opposed to what I want. And, and, and religion, good religion, say it that way, good religion breeds that concern for the other person and that sensitivity towards the other person because it respects them as being made in the image of God and it respects an accountability to God at the same time. You pull out the accountability from God, I don't have a good reason to care about that other person other than for utilitarian reasons. As long as it works, then we'll be good. But if not, then, you know, I'm going to make my choices. That's the world that we live in. It's it's a it's a it's a it's driving on a highway without signs and lanes. Okay? And, and so that's where we find ourselves. And, and, and what people in the church need to do and be are people who in the midst of that chaos say, you know what, life is really more efficient when it's lived with signs and lanes. Very good. For, for Bible educators, either like yourself in a seminary setting, but really, 
mean, this could be any, anyone who's putting together a curriculum for a class in something ministry or Bible related. It could be in a, in a Bible college or seminary. It could be in a Christian school, something like that. As they want to teach scripture in the environment that we're in, or really around the world, because a lot of these issues are becoming global, mm-hmm. not just, not just uh, right. local to us. Um, what is your advice to them about how to put together a curriculum and I know this is more specific, but how to put together a curriculum that that takes into consideration all these tensions? Well, I, I, let me let me tell you, uh, if you look at most curricula, at least in the United States, in theological schools, none of them has a required course on ethics. None of them has what I would call an applied an applied course on that deals with these issues from a biblical point of view. One, they don't have the hermeneutics for it, and two, they just don't think about doing courses. In that. And it doesn't fit in any of our existing departments. Is that a New Testament class, an Old Testament class? Is that a systematic theology class? Is that a pastoral theology class? It doesn't fit in any of those categories. Um, so, I mean, it, it, it's taking pieces. It's actually an integrative class. That's mm. the problem. It's taking, we live in silos, okay, and this is an integrative conversation that we're having. So, um People have got to rethink, I mean, rethink the way they think about their education when they mm-hmm. think about having these kinds at of courses at a very structural level. And unfortunately, curriculum revision in theological seminaries is uh, is a, a tough battle. My joke is, what will happen first, curriculum revision or Jesus coming back? <laughs> I'm voting for Jesus coming back. Oh, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, it's grim. So um, It's both hopeful and not. <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. It's realistic, but... Not too hopeful. <laughs> and so so here's the way we are doing it at Dallas, because okay. we recognize those realities. Um, and, and that is we have wrapped this perspective around our curriculum. Actually, I think it's a better solution. Because if you make it a part of the curriculum, I require you in a three-hour course to take your little ethics thing. You've done it as a required course. I've checked that off the box. I've got that requirement done. You don't think about how that integrates into everything else that you're doing. You've just taken this, and this is one piece out of 20 that I deal with. But when you wrap it around the curriculum and you do things around the curriculum where where all that you're doing is asking this kind of global question at the end about how this actually works, um, and and you've got chapels that are doing the same thing, and you've got podcasts that students are getting uh, access to that has nothing to do with credit and none of those pressures and none of those realities, it just leads to reflection, et cetera. The student is drawn into this conversation without the academic overlays that often come with stuff that sometimes can get in the way, even while you're trying to learn a skill. And and I think you have a better chance of it actually penetrating. What we found is, is that in the midst of wrapping it around our curriculum, uh, uh, it's become one of the most popular features of a student's education, even though they never take a course in it. Is that because what I'm hearing is we made it part of the culture of the school? Correct. Okay. And it, it permeated it, everything. Okay, it, and that's really the ticket. That's really the ticket. Okay. I'm, and, I'm, and, I, and, and we stumbled into it. I have to be honest. This okay. wasn't something we thought about ahead of time. A lot time. of good things are stumbled yeah, into. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we didn't come around and say, yeah, the way to do this is to wrap it around. No, what it was is that is that uh, the people at Dallas, myself included, were sitting around and we were going, you know, curriculum revision is like this huge nightmare and headache and when are we ever going to get there? And, you know, we may or may not. But if we wait for it, none of this is happening. Um, so how do we do it in the meantime? We'll do it this way in the meantime. In the midst of thinking about and, and, and beginning to do it in the meantime, all of a sudden it emerged, you know, if you wrap this around the curriculum, this is actually a more effective way to do this. And so once we, we, we went in 
just trying to be helpful. And in the midst of going in and trying to be helpful and just designing it kind of by default, because that was the only way to get it to work at the time, we saw if we actually think intentionally about this, this is going to be a more effective way to do this. And, and so now the situation, I actually had a point at, I, early on in what we were doing, I actually had a point of injecting it in a more conscious way, in a structured way in our curriculum, and I refused it. Because I said, there, and there were two reasons. One, the other thing that we were going to do was also very valuable and very needed for our global uh, culture. And I decided if we occupy that space, that, that thing will never be brought into the equation. And that thing needs, that other thing needs to be brought into the equation. I had to do with serving people on the fringes. And uh, that will never be brought into the equation. And we'll be in, it'll be an imbalance. And secondly, I said, I can accomplish what I'm seeking to do without having that space. Very insightful, because uh, I mean, we see a lot of professors. We even see some some seminary presidents come through, and uh, there's this conversation is happening with everyone in different ways, right? Um, and and I've I've heard some really cool things and other stories. It's probably the most the, the most clear presentation of the school actually taking on within the identity of the school something that then just permeates the whole thing. That's right. And, and it, as it articulated as you did, that's really exciting. And then that choice there at the end interests me, and I think will be helpful to to those in our audience who who do work with curriculum, mm-hmm. whether it's informal or formal, mm-hmm. and thinking through well, then what are the most important things to put into the measurable, academic, accessible the stuff that is measurable, academic, <laughs> and accessible. I mean, <laughs> I mean, let's, let's keep this Fair simple. Enough. All right, all right. Is that verb an aorist or not? That I can okay. measure. All right. Sure. So, um, so yeah, you want to do the things that are measurable. You want to make those the academic exercises. And then the more discerning parts, the more humanities parts of what it is that a, that a school does. I mean, they've still got to take a shot at it. They've got to give students categories that they can work with. And, and, but, but the way you do that is, I mean, that, that's ethos teaching. That's, that's not classroom teaching. And, uh, and, and so ethos teaching is something that you – that you have go through the warp and with you know another another school that does this well at least in terms of certain emphases has been the spiritual uh, life emphasis that you see at Regent College in Vancouver. I just taught there for the first time, but I've been aware of what they've been doing for decades, and and they were very very intentional about. In fact, that their their tagline on their on their uh, PR is an innovative theological school. And the innovation that they were talking about is the way in which they would not let spirituality be a sideshow in their curriculum. It was an ethos that they wrapped around their curriculum rather than having it be in a class, and so we've ticked that box. And in the process, they created a certain environment, and their environment at Regent and the questions students ask and, what they're, and, the, and the way they're driven to be formed is is distinct from many campuses that I, I have the pleasure of teaching on and visiting and getting a feel for. And so and so I've seen them do it well in a different area, but it's the same it's the same basic strategy, which is the the this the smell of this stuff is going to be everywhere. Okay. You're not going to be able to turn anywhere and not run into this question asked this way. In the, but we're not going to formally teach it to you as a class. It's just going to be the way we're going to teach you how to think. Yeah, and I've heard that. I mean, uh, uh, Johnny, who started uh, Mobile Ed, Johnny Cisneros, came from Regent mm-hmm. and really tried to bring that to bear mm-hmm. in, in what we tried to do here and have other friends who had gone there and said the same thing. Also have had friends at, at Dallas who mm-hmm. 
by and large mentioned the exact same kind of ethos they took from their experience there that you're describing was the goal. Yeah. And so it's just really interesting to hear it from you kind of how that came about. Yeah. The interesting thing is if you think about, you know, I said I've been there 34 years. I think the other ethos thing that we had going on at Dallas that's always been a part of Dallas and hopefully always will be is this commitment to make sure that people are exposed to the whole of the Bible. Uh, that they re- that they're comfortable moving through the Bible, whether in the Old and New Testament, and they're re- and they know, they know what to do with the texts. You know, they know how to talk about them, etc. They know how to think about them both systematic theologically, exegetically, biblically theologically, um, wrestling with it practically, and how to communicate that clearly. You know, we're we're about the Bible. Our our all our mantra used to be, you know, we teach all sixty six books of the Bible, and and, and this is going to be an institution where. When you come, you're going to know the Bible. That was our that was our initial ethos. Now what we've covered that over with, which I think kind of wraps up the picture and makes it full is, and all you're going to be able to wrap up the Bible around what it is that we're doing, but we also show how, how that Bible is practical in all areas of life. That Bible is going to help you think about how you live in every sphere. And so, you know, a lot of people talk about the Lordship and the kingdom of God and how that works and how that touches every area of life and cultural mandates and all that kind of stuff. But what we're trying to do is to actually show you how that works in our communities and in our people. And, uh, and, we're not, and, and we're not doing what I call the great leap. The great leap is to challenge the culture to be Christian before it has become Christian. Okay. Okay. <laughs> well <We're>, said. <laughs> okay. What we're trying to do is to try and try, how do you form Christians mm. who then live so Christianly that they have an impact in the world? And, and the only way you can do that is by showing the complete relevance and total relevance of the Bible in all its spheres. So if you come to the table podcasts and you look at the table of contents of what it is that we talk about as our topics, you know, it isn't, here's the exegetical outline of Ruth and here's the way the gospel of Mark is structured. But it is about, you know, what is it that Jesus' teaching tells us about how we should live with with our neighbor who's being uh, humanly trafficked, or what is it that what Jesus teaches that tells us about how we should deal with domestic abuse, or what is it that we, what realities does the church have to face in the fact that it takes adults longer to form a family, and what kind of pressures does that put on them, and what does that mean for their likelihood if they leave the church in college, they're having established their adult patterns, so when they have a child, whereas in the past they would say, well, we need to raise our kids in the church, now that takes so long that they don't ask that question anymore. So what does that mean for how churches are going to handle that age group so that they don't lose them? Those kinds of questions, those kinds of global practical application questions that take the full content of the Bible and actually say, this is how the Bible connects to life. It's powerful. And I've noticed, because uh, I'm one of the guys who pays attention to these kind of things, but the marketing channels for Dallas, 66 is like a feature. Yeah. And everyone, I mean, everyone who's yeah. a Bible guy knows yeah. like, okay, they do the Bible. Yeah. And, it, and it's almost like, well, why aren't the other schools picking up on like that's interest like that's kind of a driving force? Yeah. So that's really uh, you know cool to hear you say that, like it stayed the anchor, mm-hmm. and then we've covered it in these other things because that is not only just good effective communication for a seminary to do, right? It's also uh, it represents like what we should be doing exactly. <laughs> you know? right. So yeah. um, I mean, we hope to do that in Mobile yeah. Ed that we would be Bible centered and also teaching you how to engage uh, in the culture. Um, so thank you for, for sharing that. And also just thank you for this conversation. I mean, final, final question, uh, when your students are able, actually able to get into your classroom there in Dallas and, and come through 
uh, maybe the New Testament program MDiv, or if you are overseeing even your doctoral yeah, students. Yeah, we don't have any MDivs. Okay, that's right. We're the Marines. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Forgive me. Forgive We're me. We're the Marines. I you know, will, no uh, yeah. three-year week stuff here, that's, all right? No, forget that. Four years, full bore. Four, that's right. Unlike any other. That's exactly right. Take um, you 12, but that's and, okay. And I've got friends who've done that, so <laughs> yeah. I should know. My, my yeah. advisor in seminary had done it. So we I, do do MAs, just to get... Just, just, I got, so, yeah, yeah, yeah but we, even those cover the 66. Exactly right. I, I haven't missed that message No matter what. Okay. All that being said, okay, and, and my, right. you know, yeah. my yeah. full apologies yeah, no, no for the problem. error that's okay. of my ways. No, that's okay. Uh, all that being said, what do you hope your students walk out with? What's the main thing you hope they walk out and they're they're driving force? An absolute total commitment to the understanding that Jesus Christ is relevant to all aspects of their life. Amen. Period. Amen. Well, I hope that's what our listeners walk away with today. I'd be surprised if they were able to walk away with anything else. Uh, thank you so much for your time with us this week, for coming back to Mobile Ed. We, we always love having you here and, um, and for your ministry to the church and to all the, the, the lives that you're able to touch through the podcast and your other um, efforts in cultural engagement and publishing. We're, we're very appreciative. Here's a teaser. Okay, Te- you tease asked, me. You asked what projects I'm working on. Yeah, tease it. Um, at the first of the year, I will be uh, launching, uh, uh, becoming a spokesperson for a national radio ministry. I can't say which one yet. Oh, man, but it it's is coming. a tease. It's coming January 1st. There will be a clue in August. That's okay. all I'll say. Okay, well, you've heard it here first. <laughs> That's right. On That's Mobile actually true. I, I can at least claim that. That's right. The teaser. Yeah. You know, uh, not quite J.J. Abrams' Star Wars, yeah. but close. Yeah. <laughs> but close. <laughs> Something's going to happen. There will be more information in yeah. August. We'll all be looking for it. Thank you so much. Well, you can learn more from Dr. Bach by taking one of his courses, which you can find at logos.com slash mobile ed. We hope you enjoyed it.